Welcome to Evolution of AI with Reese Jones. Dive deep into the intricate world of artificial intelligence, exploring its origins, its impact on our culture, and its future trajectory. Let's get started. This is our continuing series on AI consciousness, more or less. And it's a rapidly changing topic. Tristan Harris recently described the rate of change in AI technology and applications as double exponential. So an exponential on top of an exponential. So today we're going to talk about AI and psychedelics. And this is a vast and complicated topic that I'll hopefully put a little framing around it so that we have something to start from. So this isn't necessarily about AI taking psychedelics or the mental health of AI entities, nor about AI causing psychedelic experiences in people. It's more about the area of how does consciousness and AI and psychedelics relate to each other and how we might want to talk about that. So one of the important centerpieces of essentially AI and for people is what is reality. And at one extreme is there's an objective reality. Ayn Rand is a poster child for, but many people would say reality is subjective, but the arguments about truth and facts and these kind of things assume there's some kind of objective reality as opposed to each of those things being subjective to each of us. And AI working on the same data has a similar issue with reality. So objective reality is there's the reality that we experience from our interior point of view or consciousness or our awareness. And sometimes we're awake and sometimes we're dreaming, but it's our interior view. And each person has an interior view, but each person's view is slightly different. And we have a shared consensus reality, many of us do, but it's usually translated through language. And so our consensus reality needs language to uh, connect together. And it's a subset of what we actually experience and a subset of what all the other people actually experience. And the corpus of data that the chat eyes have been built on is the language that's accumulated on the internet for the most part. And so it's the consensus reality as translated to language, as stored on the internet, as learned by the large language models for AI, and as referred to by humans. And so we often Google things or check out Wikipedia or look at the news or social media to figure out what our consensus reality should be, which is how the general group of people that we stay connected with perceive reality. And is that different than what our experience is in the moment? And so these things are not hard lines. It's a continuum of ambiguity and there's no hard facts and there's no hard reality in my opinion. And so how this relates to psychedelics, we can start from what is psychedelic mean? And the sort of Greek origin of meaning is the psyche or mind becoming real or manifesting or becoming noticeable or visible. And that this, hopefully, these kind of psychedelic experience can be used to 
expand the potential of what the human mind is. And as we'll get into a little bit, the mechanisms of the psychedelics seem to be turning off a system that suppresses possibilities in the human mind. And it's an interesting concept when you apply it to, say, AI. And psychedelics, by definition, also are hallucinogenic drugs that trigger non-ordinary states of consciousness. And so that opens the question, what is an ordinary state of consciousness? And of course, it varies from sleep to awake to what we've eaten to how tired we are and so forth. And so an ordinary state of consciousness doesn't always include, is there a coronal mass ejection on the sun in this solar system that might soon impact the planet? Some people think about that every day, but most people don't. And so the sphere of expansion of consciousness can be a lot of different things in attached to physical reality, but also fantasy and dreams and visions and such things that aren't necessarily in physical reality. But most people's consciousness is very narrow, like those cones on a dog that's had surgery that, you know, you're aware of maybe what's right in front of you, but not expanded beyond that. And so psychedelics can help expand that consciousness. And how much of that is awareness of something real and how much of a hallucination is ambiguous. And so the definition of artificial intelligence as opposed to biological intelligence is it's a machine that's simulating a process that happens in biology, but the mechanism of how it works is different in being artificial or synthetic intelligence and that the mechanism affects it to some degree. And so at a superficial level, it seems consciousness and intelligent like biology, but it's, it's a toxic mimic in that it appears to be intelligent, but it's not the same as the similar feeling intelligence coming from a human. And so this is the realm of the Turing test and can you tell the difference between an artificial intelligence and biological intelligence. And uh, certainly by many measures, you'll be able to fake biological intelligence very well or surpass it with artificial intelligence. But the underlying mechanisms of how the intelligence works is different in machines and animals. And so there's subtle things that might be used to make a more rigorous Turing test, but also that the expectations of what intelligence is varies if it, whether it's artificial or real. And so one of the ways to think about this is there's different kinds of biological intelligence. There's plants and animals, of course, but there's microbes and other creatures that all have some level of intelligence, in my opinion. And they all, though, work on DNA and biochemistry and water. And so we're all related as cousins of each other, the DNA, carbon-based life. And this behaves in a myriad different ways as far as looking at it from an intelligence point of view. And there's been a long effort to make artificial intelligence over 50, 60 years, depending on who you talk to and how you evaluate it, of how do you make a machine mimic conscious human intelligence? And we're getting the first glimpse of these with things like ChatGTP and large language models. 
but also in robots and calculations and simulations and so forth that are not trying to mimic intelligence, but they're using the software techniques of AI to mimic things that are in real life. But the main message being that they're mimics of, they're not a copy. So as I mentioned that carbon-based biochemistry and biology is all related and an evolutionary process where it's all of the life forms and creatures and species are cousins of each other, genetically related to what's the last common ancestor or LUCA that we've all evolved from. And it's some kind of early cell with its information encoded in DNA that replicates and diversifies, which has become each of us and every other thing that's alive. But the mechanism of living things is this biochemistry that eventually evolves intelligence in lots of different ways. Like human intelligence is quite different than octopus intelligence, which is quite different than slime mold intelligence. And so these are all intelligences that work on biochemistry, but they have different properties. And so one of the things that really jumps out about this last week, we talked about limbic resonance and that AI doesn't have a body and that AI runs on a machine, which uses these different mechanisms. And so limbic resonance is something with these embodied practices that we know well as the feeling of resonance between people that you're touching with or sitting in a room with or close to. And that you can feel what they're feeling and they can feel what you're feeling. But this works on a principle of a resonance where you're very similar to the other person and they're very similar to you. And so there are things like the strings on a guitar where if you pluck one who might be slightly different than another string, they're both strings and they're both on a guitar and they're both going to resonate to some extent from the frequencies that are coming from their neighbor, where the mechanism of this, of limbic resonance, then creates the harmonics of sounds and so forth. But it's relying on principle that things are the same. And so limbic resonance, when, when you're talking about whole people, is the more similar they are, the more they'll resonate. So the more similar people are to you, the more that you'll resonate and empathize and what they're feeling. And your body will feel what they're feeling because it's similar and it's resonating. And so this is a principle of limbic resonance in psychotherapy and going and dancing and going to a movie where there's a scary scene and everybody jumps. And you can anticipate that everybody's going to jump because you're jumping and you know what that feels like in your toes and your hips. And so it's a, an experience. But as the species diversify, you're not resonating exactly the same way. And so the limbic resonance, say, between two different species is still there, still biochemistry underneath sameness. But then there starts to be divergence as to exactly how it works in some of the nuance and details. And so essentially interspecies communication has obviously been around since there's life. And the dogs and dolphins are cousins of each other and they have the same DNA mostly. And they're have larger brains largely and they interact in a 
kind of resonant way. And you're attracted to things you're more resonant with, perhaps. But anyway, the communication becomes a little bit more complicated and not as complete. And the consensus reality between the dog and the dolphin isn't as comprehensive as between two dolphins or two dogs or between people. And so for AI as a new life form that's developing in its early stages, our interaction isn't going to be the same as between other biological creatures or other humans, for sure, in that it'll have some of the characteristics of a human and some of the characteristics of a family member, but not the underlying mechanism of it is completely different. But we can still coexist as coexisting species and interspecies communication. It's just our expectations have to be tempered into what's possible in terms of sameness and differentness and tolerance of that. And the another psychological principle of the kind of resonance between people is the theory of mind at a more complex level than limbic resonance. It's more what is the person the other entity thinking and feeling inside. And so when you look under the covers inside an AI model, it's not going to be the same as a biological mind. And it's evolutionary history, in this case, going from Clippy, the artificial assistant and Windows from years ago, to a fancier version that we think is a new thing, but it's basically AI software. And software has been around for a while and it's evolving, but it's evolving on a different path than biochemistry. And so in this interspecies communication, there's already things have been implemented, especially by Apple, as far as they call it cognitive accessibility, where some people are blind, some are deaf, some visual problems. There's different capabilities for different people, even in the best of health. And so rather than saying everybody must figure out how to work with computers and the computers are rigid, the computers should become flexible and a, able to work with anybody regardless of their mental state. And that includes humans in good health where some will have different capabilities than others, but other humans will have mental health issues, physical impairments, sensory impairments, and the computer should adapt to that. It should learn what your not impairments are, but what your differences are and adjust the information accordingly. If the computer knows you can't see, it should talk to you and it should describe things that normally would have a visual impact in, if you're describing them in audio, the description should be fitting with what you can receive because maybe you don't speak English. And so the computer should also translate to the language that you do speak. And maybe you're only five years old. And so it should, you know, simplify what the idea is of trying to be communicated into the way that you receive. And the burden for this should be on the computer and not on the person. And that would apply equally in the diversity of what is a person. But some people are cats and some are dogs and some are dolphins. And so the computer should recognize this and translate what the information is to the recipient in a way the recipient can receive. And so this is like a positive trend, I think, that's using the extra power of the computer and, and the increasing power of the computer to better adapt to the user. 
And then further levels of personalization to you, I mentioned sort of age and cognitive accessibility, but you may end your life be more interested in fiction and games and playing fantasy and not in the serious accounting of consensus reality. And so the computer should be aware of that or should learn this and allow you to explore in these domains that aren't even attached to reality or truth or things of this nature. And so each person then is freed to be explore reality and life and their life path in a way that fits them, but like a new species coming out and then interact with others who are like inclined or not so much. And so how this relates to psychedelics is in the psychedelic journey experience, functional MRI has been used to do the connectivity maps of what areas of the brain are talking to what other areas of the brain. And one of the most striking facts that has a physical basis from these studies and an experiential basis is in the normal state, the non-altered state, people have a lot of connectivity between the different parts of their brain. But when you add in a psychedelic, psilocybin in this case, the number of connections and the volume of connections between different parts of the brain that normally don't talk to each other very much increases substantially. And so you have more chit-chat going on in the different parts of your brain, like your hearing to your visual to your physical sensation are more conversant and communicating more uh, under the psychedelic than they are in the normal non-altered state. And this is probably true of other altered states as well, where they're almost all in a container where you're able to go more deeply into the subconscious and communicate internally as to things that you don't normally notice the color of something or the sound of something else or whatever. And you become more aware of that because your brain is more able to have these side conversations that are normally suppressed. And so one of the things that is suppressed, and this is Robin Carhart Harris and UCL, but now at UCSF, and this concept of the default mode network in the brain and how psychedelics affect the default mode network. And this network is a set of connections pictured here in a different way in a more of a physical brain imaging type picturing that are the different parts of the brain that are responsible to different things like visual and auditory and body sensation that are not directly connected, but are all controlled by this network that says, ignore what you notice for the most part. And so the default mode network suppresses communication and traffic between the areas of the brain. And what the psychedelics seem to do collectively is turn off this default mode network. And it may also be that meditation is working on a similar principle and, and various forms of meditation to greater or less extent, where your normal down-regulated sensation of your experience of reality is taking input from your different senses and integrating that into how you feel and what you're thinking. But the freeways that allow that integration have traffic lights on them and the psychedelics seem to turn off the traffic lights, if you will, and allow more 
rapid communication. So even though the interior experience is more elaborate, the more elaborate may be the base state and your consciousness is suppressing all the sensations that you have available and the psychedelic turns that down. Some would call that your ego or whatever, which allows you to relax and experience the more variety of sensations that you actually are feeling anyway. And so other meditative practices may do similar. And so it close the analogy of this in, in large language models like chat GTP in that how it's relating the different concepts that there are is there's a concept that they use called temperature where what is the temperature of the AI net or the creativity of the AI in linking the different words. So as we've talked about before, everybody's familiar with Google type ahead where you start typing, I'm on my way to, it'll say coffee shop or work or home or whatever as a prompt. And just like the evolution from Clippy to ChatGTP, it's gotten more uh, elaborate in how much it can predict because it's looked at trillions of conversations and can look at what are the most likely patterns. And so it'll predict the next word based on what is the most likely pattern on the internet from all people. And then maybe it'll narrow it down to your friends and so forth. And so it, when you ask, what is your favorite animal? People will have a response that like most people will say a dog, of course, but some people will say a cat and what the temperature is, which you can adjust in chat and other language models is whether you, it constructs something for you that is based on the most likely word that's going to come next or the next most likely or the one less likely than that. And so you can make things very boring and predictable by setting the temperature low, essentially where it'll predict what most people would predict, or you can turn the temperature up and it'll take more radical choices in words, like from a thesaurus of picking more extreme words that mean the same thing and maybe are less popular, less likely to be said. But for people who say my favorite animal is a penguin, that's not likely to be said, but somebody might. And you can make a more creative expression or writing or generation from the generative AI by turning up the temperature and choosing less probable words, which makes it more creative. So it's like the default mode network in consciousness where this phenomenon of suppressing the possibilities is the normal state of consciousness. But if you turn off the default mode network and turn up the temperature and you allow more creative exploration of a word space similar to a sensory space, you, we call that creativity. And so another kind of mental health state issue with psychedelics that cause hallucinations or hallucinogen is why they call them that is an experience that normal humans have and people hallucinate things all the time. And it's turning out that the language models, no matter where you set the temperature, hallucinate things in the same ways that people do in a mental health state or an altered state of consciousness. And an example of this is, say, mirages, where 
It's a hallucination that your normal state of mind thinks that there can be a visual thing, like it thinks it sees something that isn't really there, but it might be there. And so this is a little bit like the temperature phenomenon that there's the thing you want and the thing that might be there and the restaurant in the mirage is most probably going to be in that little valley over the hill, but it's not going to be in the sky and it's not going to be right in front of you. That it's it's a mirage of what you want to see, even if it's not there. And some of the evidence is coming from the fact that the environment is blurry and you're imagining things that you want to see, but it's still putting it in the most probable place, but not everywhere. And so a mirage might be something that is good that you're hunting for and, or it might be something that's scary that you're running from. And so these mirages can be like an oasis and oasis is a little bit of a it's a fantasy. It's a fiction. It's something that an expectation or a goal, but it's just your interior experience. And so it's not necessarily real, but it's real to you. And so that you can go to the oasis in the mirage and, but it, it may not be real. And the consensus reality is it's not real, but to you, it's real. And so this is like a common psychedelic experience where you're seeing and hearing and feeling and thinking about things that not everybody agrees with. But that's not necessarily an altered state. It's like probably in your normal state and most people's reality is their personal reality. And it's not until you get into a consensus opinion about it that you realize that you're crazy. And so the consensus realities can turn into like lifestyles and there's a lot of religions work on this and they're very particular about language and ideas of consciousness and reality. And so the reality of consensus reality is dependent on there being a community. It's things that are translated into languages. Religions have evolved to have like an evolutionary selected for way to behave or like a path through life and they're evolving just biological creatures with different traits are evolving that the different paths are competing with each other to be the best path for fish through the water or land animals through the land and they survive or go extinct based on how productive they are in evolution and so the path the life path are like different species just like biological species and AI species are different kinds of life. And then some of the paths get branded as the way of somebody or other. And historically, these paths to learn them and memorize them come from partly cognitive intellectual discussion, but they're much better memorized as practices. And so you go through these practices to better reinforce the path to better survive and selection and so forth. And so that is the reality for most people and most communities of people. And so is that a spiritual reality? Are you associated with a religion? Are you associated with a certain species? Are you associated with a physical phenomenon? Or are you, is yourself, your consciousness, something that, you know, is attached to your spirit and is 
just happens to be visiting these different connections to different paths and people and species and so forth. Thanks everybody for joining us. And that was AI Psychedelics. Thank you for uh, joining us on Evolution of uh, I with Reese Jones. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Stay connected as we continue to explore the fascinating world of AI. Until next time, keep questioning, keep exploring.